Yeah, there's one big question the club haven't answered, which related, which unfortunately is the environment you are celebrating. But Roberto Mancini was discovered to have had separate payments from Abu Dhabi while okay, he was guys, manager. We're not have you ever had separate payments we're not from Abu Dhabi that now, while City manager? Do you, know, do you know the question as you ask him to me? Do you know the question asking me if I receive money for another situation right now today? Do you believe, honestly, do you think I deserve to make this kind of question that happened, Roberto, I don't know, that they want to travel about the, I've received money for other situations? Okay, we're running an embargo now, please, for oh one day. You are listening to Race to the Bottom. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Race the Bottom with me, your host, Joe Harmon. This week's episode is an interview with Nick McGeehan, who is a researcher, a reporter, someone who's worked extensively with Open Democracy and Human Rights Watch on many of the human rights abuses that have existed and currently exist in the Gulf Nick's work focuses a lot on the UAE and he's really someone who's caught my attention on Twitter with several of his articles that he has written about the Manchester City ownership under the Abu Dhabi United Group overseen by Sheikh Mansour. Nick is incredibly well informed. He is someone that is deeply experienced in the region, someone who's lived there and I'm really privileged for him to have given me the time to share the knowledge that he has and the worries that he has with how such an ownership model can and will perhaps affect the overall landscape of the football world. I'm going to tee it up here and I hope you enjoy the interview. I'll be back at the end to say my thanks and close it down. Here it is. First and foremost, just want to say massive thanks for wanting to come on on my podcast, Race to the Bottom. Um, topics like this are things that I think is what's drawn me to, um, you know, love of football, but also kind of the wider topics of the ethics behind it. And you are a guy that you know I've followed massively on on Twitter. Your articles, I think, are second to none with regards to. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 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 taking people to task, you know, which I think um, we need to do in football. Um, and topic-wise, really, the, the the monstrosity that is kind of the Man City ownership and the, the complexity of it, um, there'll be nobody more well kind of uh, versed in it than yourself to discuss it. So if I could hit it off with kind of asking a, an overview of like kind of the the political structure of um, of kind of Abu Dhabi and UAE and, yeah. uh, and where that kind of leads to the, the Man City takeover in September 2008. Yeah, so so Abu Dhabi's the most powerful emirate in the United Arab Emirates. There are seven. Dubai is is another one, um, and Abu Dhabi's the most powerful because it has all the oil. Um, so they've always sort of ruled the roost in the UAE. 
Um, people are often a bit confused as to what the difference is. Um, it's basically a federation. I guess the most powerful man in the country is a guy called Mohammed bin Zayed, who's the crown prince um, of Abu Dhabi. Uh, he's basically been in power uh, probably for about 10 to 12 years. Um, very aggressive, um, very robust uh, foreign policy, very charismatic man. Um, and he's the guy who I contend is, is behind the Manchester City project rather than the nominal owner, which is his brother, which is Sheikh Mansour. So mm-hmm. City was always presented as, you know, the Sheikh Mansour project, the Sheikh Mansour project. And I guess I started started writing about it because I was very frustrated. Well, that's one of the reasons. I was very frustrated at how it was being presented as as one man's private sort of venture, you know, mm-hmm. just, some, just, just a rich man's plaything. And it was clearly, if you looked at it, it was clearly a state-run venture. It was clearly the uh, part of a, you know, part of their, their sort of business and and political strategies. And the guy in charge was was Mohammed bin Zayed. Um, so yeah, that's my sort of basic thesis on, on who's running the club. The thing that's really interesting is why do you think City were were chosen? How did it come about that they chose City? It's something that's always kind of uh, scratched my head at not any disrespect to, to Man City themselves, but yeah, what's the, the thought behind it? Yeah, the theory behind it? I guess it was speculation, right? Um, but I, I, I wonder, and this actually isn't my theory, so so I should should state that. But people in the know who I've spoken to wonder if it was if it was a mistake, you know, if actually that when the guy who was the front man at start was. Um, Solomon Al Fahim, mm-hmm. he was this sort of Joker celebrity type figure, um, and he wasn't sort of it wasn't being done in the most professional way. Um, and certain people I've spoken to who know the region and know the sort of political dynamics wonder if the people in charge, which is to say the people who work for Mohammed bin Zayed, now that's Khaldun Al Mubarak and Simon Pierce, if they were basically called in to rescue this situation, um, and if you know it's possible that they maybe saw the potential of the club and and took it from there. It, you know, the way it was taken over was, was sort of bumbling and amateurish, and these guys are not bumbling and amateurish. So part of me thinks that was what happened, and that may, you know, explain why Mansour has never been particularly involved in it. You know, maybe it was his deal that went wrong, and his big brother came in and sorted it all out and saw the potential of it and took it on. Again, it's just a theory, um, but but that's that's one thing that potentially happened. What's the wider issue with with the Abu Dhabi United Group? Because we're not just talking about a wealthy owner, are we? In, in the sense that you know Abramovich, you know, when he arrived, he was the wealthiest of the wealthy. But we are we're talking about a totally different scale of of wealth here, aren't we? Yeah, you're talking unimaginable wealth. <laughs> yeah, um, nobody knows how rich they are. Nobody knows how much of the state's oil money is going directly into their pockets. They keep the nationals happy by giving them jobs and houses and such, but um, a lot of that money is it's corruption. You know, they're, they're taking a lot of it and they invest it abroad. They they need to invest that money abroad. You know, they have to they have to get it earning basically. Um, I'm not sure City. I don't think City is primarily about getting a return on investment. I think it's about other stuff, um, but it certainly creates further investment opportunities. So, yeah, I guess that's what I think's going on. Um, one of the, the guys who interests me, and I think you're the only sports journalist I've read, Nick, who's, who cited The Intercept and, uh, and Blackwater. When you, when you talked about Simon Pierce, I'm a big fan of the, you know, the Intercept 
work mm. and, and their podcast. Um, mm. And when I read kind of his previous PR company and their kind of links with Blackwater and Eric Prince, that kind of uh, sent a bit of a shiver down my spine. What's his role? Who is this this guy? I know he's a director of sorts. Yeah, Pierce is the sort of Pierce is the comms guy. Yeah, right. he's the comms guy for Abu Dhabi, and uh, he's the comms guy for Manchester. I mean, he does PR, he does propaganda, whatever you want to call it. Whenever there's a communications issue, whenever communications strategy, media strategy has to be uh, addressed, Pierce is the guy who does it. He does the same job for Abu Dhabi as he does for um, as he does for Manchester City. So very powerful guy, um, very close to that inner circle who are close to to MBZ. I mean, that's typically when people talk about Mohammed bin Zayed, they use that abbreviation, MBZ. Uh, so very close to him. Um, and yet not a particularly um, very smart individual, um, obviously, but football journalists who know him don't often speak of him in particularly fond terms. I've never met the guy. Um, and I'm not, a, I'm not a sports journalist, really. I'm a sort of researcher who happens to occasionally write about sport. I mean, the Blackwater connection you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's not just Pierce. You know, Eric Prince built Mohammed bin Zayed a private army uh, back in 2012. Eric Prince was the guy who set up the Seychelles meeting um, that was in the Mueller report into mm-hmm. Russian interference in the US election. Um, so Pierce is close to Mohammed bin Zayed, and he's also close to people in Trump's circle. These are incredibly powerful and sinister people who are involved in that project. Because it lends itself the ownership and, and UAE to the criticisms that, that you've leveled through your rights and things taken on the wider context of the war in Yemen and the role that kind of UAE play with it. And it's something that football fans have a real problem with having their attention kind of drawn to, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I can understand that, you know. Um, um, because you you don't go to the game because you want to talk about the war in Yemen. You know, it's the last thing you want to talk about. And it's escapism. It's the whole point of it. But that's partly why it's so useful as a sort of political tool to have one of these clubs. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, nobody wants to talk about that. Uh, nobody wants to talk about all these other issues. But unfortunately, when, when clubs, and it's not just City, but when the game is being manipulated and exploited and sinister actors who have no concern about either the clubs or the game, when they get involved it's important that we sort of scrutinise their motives. Fans don't have to I mean, I, I don't think fans have to and I can understand why they don't, but I guess what frustrates me is when they when they seek to deny what's going on and present it as benign uh, when in fact it's, you know, it's again deeply sinister. In your last article the Trollable article you discussed uh, Dr. Martha Newsom. Yeah. It was really, really interesting. I'm just wondering if you can kind of share it with, with the listeners to give an idea of, uh, just go into it in better detail than I could. Sure. I mean, if I could take it back a little bit, when I, when I used to work at Human Rights Watch, and, um, and I remember when, when this, the Abu Dhabi and the city issue was discussed internally, I was very keen for us to take it on because I thought it was dangerous. I think it was dangerous to give these cultural and societal institutions into the hands of um, unethical actors. Um, and I remember the pushback at the time was, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who owns football clubs. We don't care who owns football clubs. And I thought that was wrong because I think they're incredibly powerful. And I think the the attachment that supporters have for their clubs 
is often quite trivialised. And I'd always sort of believed that instinctively, having sort of been a supporter myself in a, almost a former life. <laughs> you know, I sort of felt that intense mm. power of, of attachment to a club. Um, and then I was, I can't recall where I came across Dr. Martha Newson's work, but essentially she's, a, she's an anthropologist who works on the psychological theory of identity fusion. Identity fusion, and I hope I don't gargle her theory, identity no, fusion... Identity fusion is when an individual becomes so attached to a group that the group identity supersedes the individual identity uh, and the individual um, starts to act in defence of the group um, rather than himself. Uh, so it's intense bonds. And usually, according to Dr. Newsom's work, usually you see things, you see these bonds in, um, in insurgent groups, <laughs> like fighters, you know, battalions, and they've also found it among twins. They found it in all sorts of societal groups. But what Dr. Newsom's done is she's looking at identity fusion as it relates to football fans. And what it does is it is it confirms, I guess, what a lot of football fans know instinctively, but what a lot of non-football fans don't understand, which is just how strong those bonds are. Mm. So, and, and there's a further thing she found in her research, which is fascinating. She said to me, she said, of course, dysphoric experiences are, are more powerful than euphoric ones and i i had no idea what she was talking about until she explained that dysphoric means well, the opposite of euphoric but really depressing or hurtful or traumatic incidents mm. um and at that point i you know mindful of the sort of history of manchester city a club that's you know renowned for tragic failure on the pitch i asked her you know would that tie into this idea would, would a club would fans who've gone through suffering, you know, be far more attached and committed to their club than fans who, who, who aren't, or who haven't, rather? And she, she said quite resoundingly, yes, you know. And she's actually done research on, on City fans and says they are, she calls them highly fused. Now, she's also careful to point out that this doesn't have to be negative. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it, it's a sign of commitment. And I guess what I was trying to show in the article and what concerns me is that that commitment, that love that fans have for their club is being subverted by, by, you know, by these sort of nefarious actors, if you will. Um, how do you see it kind of extrapolating out with regards to the ownership of the club and, you know, 10 years in, almost like 10 years on? I, it's hard to say. I think it's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, in the article, I guess I was trying to make the point that whereas the club and the fans rightly see this as the moment of the greatest success, I wonder if the guys who run it are starting to see a little bit of failure creeping in because they didn't envisage situations where the media would be so sceptical of what they're doing. They didn't envisage situations where their internal communications is being hacked um, and sort of released all over in those Der Spiegel football leagues articles that's been really damaging to them um so i guess i think they're in an awkward place i suspect they'll come out fighting um i suspect they'll use the same sort of tactics that they they use at home i mean they're a state right they act like a state not a football club because that's what they are <laughs> um so and i guess the other thing that's interesting is the, the extent to which they're in a rivalry with qatar is important here. I mean, that's a really intense hatred that they have now of each other. And with Qatar so heavily involved in football itself, 
both because of the World Cup and their ownership of PSG and the potential ownership of Leeds, which has been touted for some time. I wonder if Abu Dhabi will be will not retreat from the scene and not leave the field to Qatar because that will be seen as a defeat. And I don't think they'd want to to lose face like that. So I think they're probably here to stay, which is a bad thing. Um, and I think they'll have t- t- plans and tactics for dealing with the media who criticise them again, which I think is a bad thing. But there is there is a really good nucleus of of reporters who uh, Rob Harris, you know, uh, got his head bitten off you know, by by Pep on the uh, uh, for the final day of the season, and and was it the final day of the season? Was it yeah. the cup final? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and then I don't know. Perhaps you're more informed about the the spread of international reporters, but there does seem to be uh, a contingent within the kind of UK that that are asking questions similar to yourself. Yeah, yeah, I think there are, and and I think part of, but I think what's not been talked about is how City's own PR has been partly responsible for that. I mean, the the, the cup final response, you, you know, Rob Harris had asked that question before, and the club had never given a never given an answer. He was just asking that question again at the only forum that he had available to him. Again, people won't talk about that, but, but you know, City have a very locked down PR um, operation, very tightly controlled. Um. But in the week leading up to the cup final, when the, the news of the or the revelations that City fans had sung that song um, about Liverpool, which was interpreted as being about Hillsborough and was deemed offensive to, to the family of Sean Cox, the Liverpool fan who, who suffered a you know, serious assault, City issued threatening legal letters to the media that week, um, saying that, you know, effectively saying they didn't want the media to write about that. Um, and that they were, you know, taking legal advice on it. So that was the run-up to the cup final, and I think this is the culmination of some really bad PR. That, again, it's, think of it as a state, think of it operating as a state, and you understand how aggressive it is in its PR operations. Um, and that's coming to, as the club has come under more and more criticism, I think that very aggressive approach has come to the fore, and it might work at the UN, and it might work at home domestically, it's not going to work with sports reporters and I think it got their backs up I think that the media relations and the way they've tried to handle the media has been very badly done and that partly explains why there is this uh, large group of in the press who I think are um, are, are frustrated with uh, the way that they handle uh, media relations basically Talking about the, the kind of restrictive approach that they have to uh, kind of the media opportunities. What do you mean by that? How do they operate on that level? I, again, I'm not a journalist, so it's difficult for me to say. I obviously I know because of the work that I do. I've worked with a lot of journalists down the years, whether it's on issues really often issues relating to Qatar and migrant workers' rights, um, and often the issue of City would come up because I like talking about that issue because I think it's important and I think for a long time journalists just didn't cover it. Um, and um, you just get a sense that this is a pretty tight ship. They keep things locked down. You see, I mean, I've I've spoken to people within City's PR team. I've been called by them. I've had a coffee with them. Um, and I've seen how they how they operate. Um, which is incredibly professional. Um, they are clearly very good at their jobs, um, but it is tightly controlled from everything that you see, 
and from every hint that you pick up from the journalists who work with them on a frequent basis. It's obvious that, and you can see the hand of Simon Pearce in all of this, of course, behind it, you know, managing things and making sure that the messaging is, is how they want it to be. Do you come in for a lot of criticism for your, you know, the research that you pursued, Nick, uh, over time, especially with social media being as friendly as it is to uh, anyone who criticizes? Yeah, I just, one of the reasons I was late on the, on the call was I've, someone set up a fake Twitter account for me today. Um, yeah, I just saw that. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it's been, I guess it's been quite bad since um, it was bad when I wrote the first article uh, and it's been bad this time. So, um, yeah, I mean, you sort of, it comes with the territory. You understand that there is a certain segment of any fan base who go online and who take any criticism of their team really personally and who respond negatively or abusively. So I don't think this is something that is just common to City fans. I think it's any fans in the world who would behave that way. Um, it's not pleasant, but it comes with the territory, unfortunately. Um, yeah, it's, it seems pretty pretty tough. Um, going on to kind of Twitter and the, the trolling aspects of it, how do you find that as a kind of influencing role in the narratives of Man City, of the work that's been done? You know, there's one or two individuals, whether they're fake accounts or, or bots as such. Um, you can't yeah. talk about it. I can't think of the specific individual that you cite in your article, um, but he, he seems to be remarkably well informed. How do you feel about that? Yeah, well, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, it is and it isn't. I guess, I guess what I noticed over time, and it was just a nagging doubt in my mind, was that I started to notice that certain lines started coming from the fans, the online fans. Um, certain defences or attacks um, were being trotted out. And, and there seemed to be a little bit of a consistency to it. And of course, you don't, you don't like to get into conspiracy theories, but it did, did strike me that it almost looked as if stuff was being fed to the online fan base. I think when things changed was with the appearance of this, yeah, or a couple of characters online, I guess round about in May. And these were accounts that were anonymous, uh, these were accounts that were written by people whose first language was clearly not English, um, people who did not uh, seem to have any direct link to Manchester, and who were engaged in the type of activity that I would see quite frequently when I was a researcher working on the Gulf. So you'd quite frequently see uh, the pushback against criticism of the UAE was always to smear and discredit those who were doing that. It was never to address the criticism itself. It was to say that the people who were making that criticism had an agenda uh, or that they were not reliable. And this account, one account in particular, spent a lot of time, invested a lot of time in putting that message out, citing, you know, putting you know, links and facts together and coming to absurd conclusions um, and then getting those conclusions out to the city online fan base and these were then taken up with gusto by by accounts that were clearly genuine fans. Uh, now, is this person, uh, like I said, someone with time on their hands um, who, who likes doing this sort of stuff? Uh, potentially, uh, you know, the internet's a funny place, and that's entirely possible. But in in the in the article, what I try to argue is that the more plausible explanation 
is that this is what's called astroturfing. Astroturfing is something that PR firms do. Lots of PR firms offer it as a service. It's when you basically hire someone and that, that individual will set up an account and pose as a genuine individual and look to uh, create certain responses from an online group. Um, you know, numerous, or at least one massive British PR firm called Pottinger Bell, used to work for Margaret Thatcher, they were, uh, their downfall actually in South Africa, they got involved in an astroturfing um, scandal and several people had to resign. Um, and we know it's something that has been offered to the UAE and the Saudi governments um, in relation to their activities on Qatar. So we know this stuff happens. Um, we know it's something that's done by PR companies. We know that the UAE uses PR companies. We know that the UAE is heavily involved in the dissemination of propaganda. Um, and I guess my argument in the piece is that it is both plausible that they would do this, but also the most plausible explanation for the for the you know for the activities of this account. Now, if this account was to say who he was and what he was doing, and uh, then it would be far easier to you know to clear up that that issue. But you know these accounts never say who they are, and they react with fury if you if you ask their name and ask them to reveal their identity. So it's very sinister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it seems that way. Um, with regards to uh, one of the things I picked up in, in both what you said in your article is is how there's an inclination not to not to deny but to kind of denounce. Which yeah. seems to, uh, you know, they're as bold to go as, as high as kind of UEFA and with their attempt to kind of implement FFP, uh, you know, they, they, they go to the very top with, with that kind of denouncement of, uh, of anyone who tries to take them to task, yeah? Yeah, yeah, it's anyone who's, anyone who criticises them. I mean, you notice these accounts go after, clearly go after key targets. So they go after Miguel Delaney of The Independent because he wrote a very critical piece after the FA Cup final. They go after Rob Harris very strongly because he's asked Pep difficult questions. They go, go after Barney Roney because Barney Roney wrote an article um, about um, the odd defence of some Manchester City fans to, to human rights allegations against their owners. And, and, and the arguments they propose, this guy proposes are just, I mean, they're just utterly baseless. I mean, his argument against Rob Harris, who's a football journalist, is that Harris has gone on Al Jazeera, which is owned by Qatar. Ergo, Harris is a Qatar stooge paid to attack Abu Dhabi. And, and, and hundreds of fans take this on, take this on, and think this is gold dust. And this guy's some sort of genius because he's got four screenshots of Rob Harris on Al Jazeera. I mean, that's his job, is to go and talk about football. It's absurd. And yet he's hailed as the Messiah. His argument against Barney Roney is that Barney Roney wrote a book about the Russia World Cup, you know, in England's run to the semi-final. And instead of write, writing about the war in Chechnya, you know, so how dare he write an article about, you know, what's going on in Abu Dhabi and not at the same time write a book about war in Chechnya. It's, again, it, I, I can sort of see your eyes screwing up because it makes no sense, right? It's absurd. Mm. And what's but what's terrifying about it, he's he, he does it quite skillfully, right? I, I mean I'll give him that. He puts it together in a way that, that looks like he's constructing some sort of argument. Yeah. But when you when you analyze it, there's just nothing there. And uh, you have these hundreds of these accounts who are 
um, you know, saying that he's he's finally leading the fight back. He's finally producing facts against all these agenda-driven journalists. He's not. He's just discrediting them and trying to smear them. And actually, more more worryingly, he's I would I would say he's sort of encouraging online harassment of of some of these people for doing their jobs. Mm. It, it makes me wonder, is there anyone that can hold kind of them to task, really, or, or would they ever be held to task? And I mean kind of from a, not necessarily the, this, this individual, but kind of cities, Abu Dhabi group, and there doesn't seem to be any parties, you know, I don't think the EPL are kind of any, any power to exercise a strong sense of ownership, uh, principles. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this goes to the importance of football club ownership and the need for that to be heavily regulated and controlled. I think we need to have a really big debate about who should be allowed to own a football club and that does not just extend to Abu Dhabi, who I would say are the most extreme example and the most dangerous example. Um, but, you know, should the Glazers be allowed to own Manchester United? You know, I don't think so. Um, should Abramovich have been allowed to take over Chelsea despite, you know, his background in, in what went on in Russia? I don't think so. And the Qataris and PSG, you know, very similar model to Abu Dhabi. These are these people are not in, in the game for the for the health of the game. If we want a game that is for clubs, for fans, um, for these, and again, I think they are cultural institutions. I think they're important. And if we're going to take them seriously, then we have to protect them from these actors, and we're not. So I think it goes way beyond. I mean, I get a lot of City fans saying, what do you expect me to do about it? What do you expect me to do about it? And the answer is, honestly, not much. I think it's way beyond what you guys can do, what fans can do. I think politicians need to take it very seriously. Um, you'd like to see, you know, the parliamentary committees who can talk about stuff like this. And they should be doing that, you know. Mm. You've got a guy, you know, the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, you know, talk about all sorts of issues in football. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about football club ownership and let's go beyond this ridiculous fit and proper test, which basically means, you know, as long as you haven't been convicted of fraud, um, that you're okay, you know. I mean, that, that should not be the only metric by which we gauge somebody's suitability to take control of one of these clubs. Um, so I think that's the answer. And how you do that is, is, is difficult. Um, I, I just hope that people get their act together before more clubs are, are taken over by these guys. Um, what, what's, uh, you know, focusing on yourself, Nick, what, what's your path that's led you to kind of here from a, from a, almost a personal interest point of view? Um, you know, you work with Human Rights Watch and Open Democracy, um, but you do have, obviously you must have a, a deep love of football embedded in you to, to kind of take this approach and take this kind of, research and focus. I just wonder what's your, your kind of backstory to, to get yeah. to your point where you, you know, writing about, um, you know, writing from this angle. Mm, I think I fell into it, to be honest. I think a lot of it goes back to, to watching what was happening and looking around me and, and seeing that nobody was bothered by this. Like I said, the people I worked with didn't think it was a problem. Journalists didn't seem to think it was a problem. Fans certainly didn't seem to think it was a problem. And this is back in 2008. Um, and I was always, I could never really understand why why people weren't, you know, flashing red sirens and, and, and saying this is going to be a big problem here. What was your fears at that point, Nick? 
Um, that there's obvious power to, to owning a football club, that you have incredible power over the media for a start. So if you run a football club, that means, and you run a successful football club, then that means you control the access that sports journalists have to your players, for example. Now, that's the lifeblood of a sort of football journalist. You know, that, that's what they survive on, access. You know, they can't do their jobs without access. Now, if you can cut off that access, that's enormously powerful. Um, so, for example, I recall a, a conversation with a, a large British broadcaster, an investigative uh, programme, talking about this issue. And the line, the most serious concern they had was that it would, you know, I think the line was, it would piss off sport. And what they meant was, if they did this expose, they went hard on City, then the sports journalists would not be able to get access. So, and I guess these are the moments when I started to see, when it started to be clear to me just how, how smart it is and just how effective it is to have a football club. So that would be that would be one one of the reasons why I think it's it's dangerous. Also because these are, I mean, I, I've seen how these, I've worked in the UAE for, I lived there for four years actually, uh, and I've worked on it for about 15 years. Um, and I've seen how these rulers operate um, and they destroy and corrupt almost everything they touch. Um, and I mean that very pointedly at the ruling elite. Uh, that is not intended as a sort of any comment on, on the Emirati people themselves, many of whom, certainly the ones I worked with, were, were, were lovely, pleasant, charming people. Um, but they're dangerous and they're corrupt. Um, and they're in it for themselves for what they can get, and they have no concern about the long-term health of anything. <laughs> and they they hate criticism, they hate critical thought, um, and yeah, they are, they are just a deeply dangerous, in my view, set of people, and it was evident to me that they would sort of wreak havoc on football if they were given any significant level of control over it. And I, th I think that's what we're beginning to see right now. You know. I massively appreciate for your time and uh, and keep up the great work, man. You know, it's, it's ace having having someone like yourself ask the questions. It's great. Thanks. It's very kind. Very kind. And good luck with it. And just let me know when it's up and I'll... I'll, I'll... You're listening to Ray, Ray, Ray. Just like to say again a massive thank you to Nick for giving me the time and enduring my uh, somewhat tailing off questions now and again but for really revealing a deep understanding and knowledge base that I think more fans that are aware of the overall situation and like Nick said it's not necessarily something that fans should be critical of or should be condemned for football is escapism it should in its best form maintain that pathway but perhaps there is opportunities for football fans to lean and lean on governmental powers like the DCMS to ask greater questions because perhaps for every Manchester City ownership that is producing titles and kind of euphoric moments for 
a large group of fans, there are perpetually a number of clubs that are being financially mismanaged by individuals who are in in a similar mould to that of the of the Sheikh Mansour Abu Dhabi United Group kind of model. So many thanks for those that have tuned in and listened. If you would like to get in touch, uh, I'm on Twitter at RTTB Podcast uh, or Janola's Left Foot, which is my own Twitter handle. You can always go to the website racethebottom.net and contact us there. The podcast is available on Spotify, on iTunes and SoundCloud and many others. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word and uh, hope to speak again soon. Many thanks. You are listening.